things that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Mina. Last month, my wife and I had the opportunity to uh, meet up with some friends and have a dinner date with a couple from San Diego. We don't get to see often, and so we spent two to three hours catching up, sharing, laughing, and talking. And at the end of our evening, uh, my friend said, let's take a, a group picture. And so we took a group picture to commemorate our time. Later that evening, uh, he sent us this picture to all of us. And normally, I would open it up, take a look, and say, oh, that's nice, and close it. But this time, when I opened it up, I noticed something peculiar about my smile. And so I zoomed in, and I discovered, much to my horror, a huge piece of lettuce stuck in my teeth. It was so big that it looked I looked like a hockey player. I looked like I had a missing tooth. After I saw that, I went to look in the mirror, and guess what? That lettuce was still hanging in my teeth. And so I texted everyone back, did you see my smile? To which my friend said, bro, that was there all night long. <laughs> I'm like, why didn't you tell me? Thankfully, uh, these are good friends of ours, and though I was embarrassed, they show me a lot of grace, and this experience just reminded me of how it's human nature for us to want to look good in front of other people, especially when it comes to our appearance. Can you imagine if the same thing happened to me while preaching a sermon? I would be mortified. There was a time last, what, I don't know when was this, sometime during the pandemic, where during one of my Zoom recorded sermons, I noticed hair sticking up in the back of my head, and that's all I could look at uh, the whole time. There's something about us that when it comes to meeting someone important, when it comes to significant occasions, we want to be presentable. 
we want to look good. We carefully pick out our clothes, we brush our teeth, wash our face, do our hair. How we look is important to us. How we appear matters. The more important the person, the more significant the occasion, the more attention we place on our appearance. And so whether it's going to prom, whether it's a job interview, or walking down the aisle, all of us spend much attention on the details of how we look. Now, if that is how we act when we meet other people, then how does that impact us when we think about meeting God? If we're meticulous in our outward appearance when it comes to meeting other humans, what about when we come face to face with the living God of heaven and earth? If you think about it, this is why a lot of religions exist. A lot of religions help us to look good before God. A lot of religions exist because they have the pathway. They have the list of do's and don'ts of things to do and things not to do so that when we appear before God, we won't be embarrassed, we won't be ashamed, we won't have anything stuck in our teeth. At least this is how the Pharisees and scribes saw their faith. They saw their faith as a pathway of how to look good before God. And for the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they believed that the way to look good before God, the way to be presentable is through meticulous observance of the law of God and the tradition of the elders. For those of us who grew up in the church, we're familiar with the law of God. It refers to the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch. But we may not be familiar with what we find in verse 5, the tradition of the elders. What's that? Well, the tradition of the elders is the oral tradition of every Jewish father's teaching and application on the law of God. This oral tradition would be passed down from generation to generation until one day the religious leaders decided to codify this oral tradition and write it down, and it later became known as the Mishnah. So in Jesus' day, a Jewish person was expected to not only obey the, the Old Testament scriptures, but also abide by this Mishnah. And according to the Mishnah, you had to wash your hands before every meal. If you ate without washing your hands, you were deemed ceremonially unclean. Now, I want you to keep in mind that this, this command to wash your hands had nothing to do with hygienic purposes. Back then, they didn't understand bacteria and germs. I mean, the, the amount of water they used was so small, it really didn't sanitize you. It was purely for ceremonial, cultic purposes. And I want you to keep in mind that this rule about washing hands is not found in the Scripture. The closest thing we see in the Bible is a command for priests 
When they enter the temple of God to offer sacrifices, priests must wash their hands and their feet. But there's nothing about ordinary, the average Jewish man, person, to wash their hands before a meal. And so the disciples didn't violate God's word. They violated man's word. And the Mishnah had much more to say about how to remain clean. They had all types of rules and prescriptions on how to wash your plates, your bowls. And if it's a copper plate or a copper bowl, you have even more different prescriptions. And so the glut of regulations and rules for the everyday Jew to navigate was overwhelming. It was like a maze to sift through. And they believed if you follow these rules, then you'll be presentable before God. Now, before I get into Jesus' response, I want us to pause and consider why do we love rules and regulations? After all, these are not rules and regulations that God prescribed. The Jewish people themselves came up with this. What is it about rules and regulations that appeal to the human heart? I believe what's appealing about rules is that it gives us a sense of control. Rules and regulations make God more manageable, more predictable. How so? Well, if we say to ourselves, if I do X, Y, Z, then God will do A, B, C. If I perform these rituals, these customs, then God will like me. It's kind of like Aladdin with the genie in the bottle. If I rub the bottle the right way, then God will come out and do my bidding. There's an expectation that we place upon him since we've done our part. This this desire for control came out during the pandemic. When the virus first landed on our shores, there was mass hysteria in our country. We had no idea how this virus spread. How do you defend yourself against an invisible enemy? And so a lot of us were filled with fear and hysteria and anxiety. And so what did we do? We said to ourselves, the best way to fight against this virus is to buy toilet paper. (laughs) Amassing, hoarding toilet paper is going to help me not get this disease. Psychologists said that the, the, the hoarding of toilet paper was really therapeutic for us. It was our way of bringing a measure of control to an uncontrollable environment. We said to ourselves, if I have enough toilet paper, I'm prepared, I'm doing my part. It doesn't make sense, but that's how strong our longing for control is. I mean, have you ever been at a crosswalk and by the time you arrive, someone ahead of you pushed the button already? and you're waiting for the light, and it's taking a long time, and even though you saw the person push the button, what do you do? You push it again, and you push it again, 
Even though you know that you don't need to push the button, it makes no sense to because you don't like waiting and you have this sense of a loss of control, you exert it by pushing that button. I believe the same psychology is behind our desire to come up with all these arbitrary rules and rituals. When it comes to our relationship with God, talk about intimidating. Talk about not being in control. God is God. We are but mere creatures. And so when we're in his presence, we feel anxious. We feel vulnerable. And so we want to gain control. And so we cut up, come up with these rules thinking that, okay, if I press this button, then this is how he'll act. If I press this button, then this is how he'll act. We try to make God more tame. We try to put him on a leash. We say, if I don't watch certain types of movies, if I don't drink or dance or chew or date girls who do, if I don't listen to secular music, if I don't play cards, if I don't wear makeup, if I wake up at 4 a.m. every day to pray, then life is good. God will like me. He's not mad at me. And you'll notice that a lot of these rules and regulations we come up with are very surfacey. They're very superficial and external. Washing your hands before you eat, that's a lot easier to do than to love God with all your heart, mind, and soul. Would you agree? I would much rather have God evaluate me on whether or not I wash my hands than whether I love him with all my heart, mind, strength, and soul. Not listening to secular music is a lot easier than not coveting what my neighbor has. I'd much rather have God evaluate me on whether or not I listen to secular music than listen into my heart every time I drive by a nice home or a nice car or whatever you covet. Praying five minutes every day is a lot easier than forgiving and loving my enemy, than letting go of the bitterness and the resentment from the hurt hurtful words he or she said to me. We come up with rules and regulations not only because it makes God more manageable and gives us a sense of control, but it also makes obedience more achievable. We lower the bar of what faithfulness looks like by focusing on all these external surfacy realities rather than the more difficult internal world of our hearts. And so what does all this rulemaking lead to? Jesus has one word for it. You hypocrite. It leads to hypocrisy. Jesus responds with a scathing rebuke in verses 6 through 7. 
He says, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. What is a hypocrite? A hypocrite is someone who is two-faced. A hypocrite is someone who looks different on the outside than who they really are on the inside. A hypocrite is someone who wears a mask. Jesus quotes Isaiah 29, 13. Your lips honor me and say one thing, but your hearts say something different. Lips we see, hearts we can't. Ultimately, Israel's worship of God is a performance. It's a charade, and God sees through that performance and says, I can't stand it anymore. By living according to the oral tradition, the religious leaders became more preoccupied with their external appearance rather than their internal reality. They focused more on their behavior at the expense of their character. They focused more on their doing rather than their being. As a result, they majored on the minors and minored on the majors. Elsewhere, Jesus calls these religious leaders whitewashed tombstones. You're all sparkling and gleaming clean on the, on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of rotting, decaying bones. Now, it's easy for us to point our finger at these religious leaders and scoff at them. Boy, were they foolish coming up with all these strange rules and traditions. They so got sidetracked of what true devotion looks like. But are we much different? Sure, we may not be meticulously navigating these obscure ceremonial codes, but believe me, we too get caught up in paying much more attention on our external appearance than our internal reality. Our culture is obsessed with image, reputation, and branding. Our culture places a premium on how you look, what you wear, how much you weigh. While our, our culture may not have ceremonial rules about how to wash your hands and cookware, it does have plenty of rules as to what is acceptable and what is not. And due to social media, we can now carefully curate our own image and present to the world what we want them to see. We carefully choose the right picture with the right lighting at the right angle with the right filter. And of course, the only thing we portray are pictures of happy me, joyous me, celebratory me. And so judging by our social media pages alone, people might get the impression that our lives are nothing but travel, play, and celebrations, and good food. But is this who you really are? 
In 2015, model Asena O'Neill was on top of the world. As an 18-year-old, she had the dream life that every young girl envied. She had amassed over 600,000 followers on Instagram, over 250,000 subscribers on YouTube, simply by posting selfies of her and her life. Her platform enabled her to become financially independent as sponsorships came rolling in. Then, at the peak of her fame, suddenly she deleted all of her pictures and videos. She renamed her account, quote, social media is not real life. And she would later explain in an essay that she was tired of pretending, tired of lying, tired of being a hypocrite. Now you might say, well, Jeff, that's the reason why I'm not on social media. I'm much better than those people who portray a fake self. Well, let me ask you this. How many of us struggle with fear and anxiety? How many of us stay awake at night worrying about our parents, worrying about the future, worrying about finances, your children, your health? How many of us struggle with shame? We struggle with imposter syndrome. We worry if so-and-so discovers the real me, they're going to turn their face away. Someone finds out that I don't belong, then I'm going to have to run. How many of us feel insecure in our relationships? Boy, the way my mom hung up on me, is she mad at me or not? I'm not sure. My boss, he said good job, but it wasn't very convincing. I wonder if I need a follow-up conversation with him. How many of us struggle with addiction? We eat a little bit more than we should. We spend a little bit more than we should. We drink more than we should. We smoke more than we should. We game more than we should. We are on our phones more than we should. How many of us feel deep down inside, there's something wrong with me? I don't do what I want to do, and I don't do those things I want to do. This is how we feel about ourselves on the inside. And yet, who do people see on the outside? We work so hard to succeed on our careers, to make money so we can buy nice clothes, buy nice cars, move into a nice house. Why? Is it because those things, those earthly things, Markers of success serve as our masks to hide what we truly know about ourselves. The Pharisees might hide behind their ceremonial obedience, but we hide behind our diplomas, our degrees, our corner office, our cars, our nice clothes. 
We try to distract people from seeing the true me by showing a fake version of ourselves. You don't need a social media page to be fake. All of us portray someone who doesn't reflect who we really are. And it's our way of covering up our shame. Let me take this even further. How many of us truly practice what we preach? I think Martin Lloyd-Jones says, okay, you don't even have to be a Christian. Let's say you don't believe in the Bible. But I had a tape recorder. For those of you who don't know what a tape recorder is, um, something that before would, you know, record what you say, hanging around your neck. And I recorded everything you told other people to do. Don't lie. Don't be lazy. Be honest. Work hard. And judged your life by only those things you've judged others by. How will you do? We would all fail. Why is it that we can't walk the talk? Why we can't practice what we preach? Just as Jesus called out the Jewish leaders back then, he would call us out in this room. We are all a bunch of hypocrites. Why is this true? Well, Jesus gives us the answer. He says in verses 20 through 23, the reason why we're all hypocrites is because our hearts are corrupt and defiled. Let me read it for us. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Jewish culture believed that the heart was at the center of our thinking, our actions, our emotions, our speech. It's the controlling organ of your personhood. And Jesus points at that central controlling organ and says, it is flawed, it is broken, it is corrupted by sin. And because that is corrupted, everything that flows from it is tainted by sin as well. This is why we keep making the same New Year's resolutions every year. This is why we hurt the people we love. This is why we lose our tempers. This is why we're addicted to various things. This is why this world is so messed up. It's because we are messed up. And so how do we then fix ourselves? How do we become less hypocritical? Well, one thing for sure, it's not by paying attention to our external world. To do so is like throwing some Tylenol and cough drops at someone who is suffering from COVID or suffering from cancer. You need to get out the inside. You need to fix the source. 
And the only answer, the only one who could fix our hearts is Jesus. You see, Jesus is the only person in history who kept every word he said, who meant it and fulfilled it. He didn't just tell his disciples, love your enemies. No, he himself loved his enemies as while he's hanging on the cross, prays to the Father, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He doesn't just tell his disciples, you know what? The servant is the greatest of all. No, he himself got down on his knees and began serving his disciples by washing their feet. Jesus kept every command he gave, fulfilled every promise he made. He was a man of purity and integrity. He was holy and righteous through and through. And yet, though he loved justice, he was condemned as a thief. Though he loved truth, he was treated as a blasphemer. Though he was pure and honest, he was treated as a hypocrite. Why? It's because Jesus was trading places with us. His mission was to come to this world to take our punishment on himself and to give his obedience unto us. And so how do you cure your hypocrisy? First, you need to admit you're a hypocrite. You need to admit it. You need to stop denying, blaming, excusing, minimizing. I'm not that bad. Have you seen that person over there? You need to own it. You need to see the stark discrepancy, gap between who you are and who you pretend to be. You need to stop hiding behind your earthly accomplishments and recognize there is something wrong with me. If you really want to be a hypocrite, deny your hypocrisy. Do what the Pharisees do and say, there's nothing wrong with me. What you see on the outside is who I am on the inside. That's a hypocrite to the, to the max. You need to admit it and confess it. Then you need to go to the only one who can forgive you of your hypocrisy and redeem you, and that is Jesus. In Jesus, he takes his perfect life and he clothes you with that robe of righteousness so that we no longer need to hide anymore. In the gospel, God invites us to no longer identify ourselves on the basis of what we do for God. Instead, he invites us to identify ourselves on the basis of what Jesus has done for us. And so we find forgiveness and redemption there. Today, I am awfully aware of how many criticize the church of hypocrisy. I'm painfully aware of how many people criticize pastors for hypocrisy. We are so guilty. And if someone were to make that accusation to me, 
my response would be, you are correct. But here's my hope. Though I'm a hypocrite, I'm a forgiven one. Though I may not have lived life as best as I could or as I should, there is one who lived for me. And my life, thankfully, rests not on what I did, but on what Jesus has done for me. Not only that, but I think I would go further and say, yes, I'm a hypocrite, but I believe I'm a little less so today than I was 10 years ago. I believe I'm less ashamed of my shame than I was 10 years ago. I don't feel like I need to cover up as much as I did before. I find myself being more open about my failures and shortcomings. Why is that? Because I'm learning to rest in what Jesus has done. And because I'm resting in what Jesus has done, that shame and that guilt is lessening, and so too my need to hide behind earthly treasures. So too my need to prop myself up in the eyes of the world through an earthly lens. And because Jesus has become more and more my center, more and more my righteousness, I find that obedience is not something I have to do, but something I get to do. It's no longer a burden, but an invitation to enjoy and experience more of God. And so, yes, I am a hypocrite, but praise God that I'm a forgiven one, and praise God that I'm being a changed one, I'm being transformed. And that's the hope that God gives us today. And so my prayer, dear friends, is that we would cling to the only one who can forgive us, redeem us, and change us, that we would all turn to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, uh, we confess that it's not pleasant to look in the mirror. And Lord, your word is a mirror unto our souls. It reveals us. It exposes us. And God, we confess that we don't like what we see. We see, oh Lord, how we love to hide, how we love to perform and fake. It shows, oh Lord, just how shallow and superficial we can be. But Lord, as much as your word exposes our hearts, we are so grateful that it also shows us Christ. It shows us Jesus, and it shows us the only one who can redeem us and change us and rescue us from a life of hypocrisy. 
And so, Lord, we thank you for being our Savior, and we thank you that you change us and transform us, and we ask that you would do that work in our hearts so that what people see on the outside will more and more align with who we are on the inside. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.